0: There does seem to be an internationally coordinated effort by, for want of a better term, the censorship industrial complex to suppress dissent across a range of areas. And it seems to be pretty effective and it all seems to be happening under the radar. The coordination uh, seems to be um, uh, happening at quite a high level. It isn't just, you know, NGOs and lobby groups and charities it's also governments and government agencies. And before we know it, we'll wake up and find that there are just huge number of things we're not allowed to say anymore.
1: Hello, welcome back to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Toby Young. Toby, welcome to the show. Thank you.
0: Good to be here, Brendan.
1: It's great to have you on. And. I want you on primarily to do a stock take on freedom of speech in your capacity as the founder and director of the free speech union. Uh, it still makes me laugh that when you set that up, people said we didn't need a free speech union. <laughs> Very clearly we did. Um, in that capacity, you know more than most about where things are at in relation to freedom of speech, which I think you and I both agree is is the core freedom in a civilized society. So I guess I want to start off with a broad question, which is, how you see 2023 in relation to the free speech question it seems to me that we made a couple of steps forward but maybe rather a few more steps back what's your take on how things went this year
0: yes i think that's 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 broadly my take too that um there's been some good news but there's also been some bad news and the bad news is probably worse than (laughs) easily um uh, compensates for and more the good news um but let's start with the good news um This year, the government passed the um, Higher Education Freedom of Speech Act, which is something the Free Speech Union had been lobbying for for about uh, three years in various capacities. Um, And it will provide free speech on campus and academic freedom with slightly more robust legal protections. We think many of the people that we've had to help uh, on campuses, whether faculty or students, uh, would be in a stronger position had this bill been law when we help them. Um, But it only applies in English universities. It doesn't apply in the rest of the United Kingdom. Um, And uh, uh, that's particularly relevant because even though Scotland hasn't yet activated the Hate Crime and Public Order Act that received royal assent in 2021, it looks as though it is now going to activate that next year. Um, Apparently, the police and the courts have been gearing up Um, uh, for the bill to come into effect in Scotland next year. That's obviously going to pose a big threat to freedom of speech north of the border. Um, The Online Safety Act, it's certainly a kind of um, net loss. Um, The Free Speech Union and other free speech advocacy groups like Big Brother Watch, Index on Censorship, um, scored a few minor victories. So for instance, um, one of the things that I think the FSU can take credit for, is that um, the government were going to include something called uh, a harmful communications offence. They were going to create this new offence as part of the Online Safety Act. Uh, Again, it would have only implied in England and Wales, not the whole of the United Kingdom. Um, But what it would have done, it would have made it a criminal offence punishable by up to two years in jail to say something or communicate something online uh, to someone which caused them serious distress which is obviously a very nebulous, subjective standard, easily weaponized by political activists to shut down anything they disagree with. So we were very concerned about that. Um, but we lobbied hard against that and in the end persuaded the government to drop it from the bill. Incidentally, that was one of the recommendations made by the Law Commission of England and Wales um, in um, a report it published, I think, last year, uh, various recommendations. Ultimately, what it recommended is that there should be a Hate Crime and Public Order Act exactly like the one in Scotland in England and Wales. And we obviously lobbied hard against that proposal And the only bit of it that remained seemingly was this proposal to create a new offensive communications, sorry, this new harmful communications offence. And we managed to stop that becoming law. But I'm pretty sure that under a Keir Starmer led Labour government, one of the first things they do is introduce a hate crime and public order bill, which is very similar, potentially even worse than the one that was passed in Scotland two years ago. Internationally, I think um, the picture has been pretty bleak. Michael Schellenberger and Matt Taibbi have done some great work exposing the censorship industrial complex. Um, And there does genuinely seem to be an internationally coordinated effort to um, suppress various forms of dissent around key areas like the lockdowns, the COVID vaccines, the war in Ukraine, um, climate change. Um, And the coordination uh, seems to be um, uh, happening at quite a high level. It isn't just, you know, NGOs and lobby groups and charities. It's also governments and government agencies. And um, we saw that kind of uh, those partnerships spring up during the lockdown here, very effectively um, exposed by Big Brother Watch um, earlier this year. Um, but we saw kind of NGOs and Whitehall departments and seemingly branches of the security services working together to monitor dissent from uh government policies in certain key areas and that seems to be uh, the same the same kind of um shadowy cabal uh, if that doesn't sound too too much like a conspiracy theory seems to be behind many of the proposals uh, to criminalize hate speech around the world so the most the most kind of uh talked about one is is the um, hate crime bill that's currently going through the Irish Parliament in which Leo Varadkar wants to use the recent unrest to try and expedite and get it through, ram it through before Christmas. Um, but there are also hate crime bills wending their way through the New Zealand and the Australian parliaments. There's a proposal to introduce a hate crime bill in Northern Ireland, which uh, the Free Speech Union um, has been involved in a consultation about that. We're trying to push back against that. Uh, But there does seem to be an internationally coordinated effort by, for want of a better term, the censorship industrial complex to suppress dissent across a range of areas. And it seems to be pretty effective. And it all seems to be happening under the radar. And before we know it, we'll wake up and find that there are just huge number of things we're not allowed to say anymore.
1: Yeah, that's a really useful outline of where things are at and I I want to come back to some of those issues particularly the globalization of the hate speech idea which I think is one of the most most worrying trends that has really come to the surface in 2023 but I want to uh, dig down for a moment into a contemporary Controversy in many ways and something that I know you've been thinking about. You mentioned there as you were speaking about the potential weaponization of distress if we were to have a law in this country saying that, you know, a a harmful communication is is illegal. You could easily imagine people saying that articles by you and me, for example, might cause them distress and therefore, you know, if we were to send them around we could be guilty of some kind of offence. But in relation to the question of distress and whether it's ever... Justifiable to limit speech on the basis of other people's distress. I want to ask you about the Israel Palestine issue. Uh, an issue close to both my heart and yours. And particularly, I want to ask you about the pro-Palestine marches. I'm doing pro-Palestine in quote marks, because in my view, these aren't pro-Palestine marches. If they were, they would be calling for the destruction of Hamas, uh, not the destruction of Israel. Um, Hamas, it seems to me, is clearly uh, the, the 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 worst scourge for the Palestinian people right now. But you will know that uh, friends of ours, people who would consider themselves on the same side As us on lots of these discussions were making the case that some of these pro-Palestine marches in London, in particular, the huge ones that took place every weekend were uh, overstepped the mark. They were found uh, lots of people found them very threatening, especially Jewish people in London. Uh, they found them very uh, uncomfortable, menacing. They had lots of hatred in them. I think they were, it's justifiable to refer to them as hate marches in some ways. But surely it's incumbent upon free speech warriors to defend even the right of people we don't like to march in the streets of London, even if they do it more frequently than we would like, more noisily than we would like. What's your view on, on the free speech question when it comes to that kind of event?
0: Yeah, well, I have found it... Um quite testing in that um i think defending the right to protest and to speak out by some of the more extreme participants in those marches which have taken place more or less on every saturday since the 7th of october i have found it difficult more difficult i think to defend them than i have almost anyone else Um, but i do think as you say that um If you are a defender of free speech and of the right to protest, then you have to hold your nose and um, defend the pro-Palestinian, quote-unquote, protesters. Um, The Supreme Court standard, when it comes to what the First Amendment permits, uh, and which was famously articulated, I think, in Brandenburg versus Ohio, is that protest marches should be permitted unless they are going to cause imminent lawless action, which is a slightly circular definition, but nonetheless quite helpful. Um, The bar here is a lot lower than that, but I think um, philosophically, that's where I'd want to put the bar to. Um, And I suppose you could argue that uh, in some cases, the pro-Palestinian protests or some outcrops of those protests, such as protesters assembling outside synagogues on Saturday afternoons... um, Could lead to imminent lawless action, uh, and that therefore the police should intervene and stop those more extremist manifestations of quote unquote pro Palestinian sentiment. Uh, But I think for the most part, I would defend reluctantly um, things like chanting from the river to the sea, intifada from London to Gaza. I mean, I find them extremely distasteful, and I find it very hard to. interpret them as anything other than the call for the extermination of Israel and 7 million plus Jews who live in that part of the Middle East. Um, But nonetheless, uh, just as I think I would have defended the right of a neo-Nazi group to march in Skokie, as the ACLU famously did, provided it wasn't going to lead to imminent lawless action, which it didn't. So I therefore, I think I, you know, on principle anyway, have to defend uh, the rights of the pro-Palestinian protesters to protest um, in the way they have been for the most part. Um, I mean, I, I suppose it's possible you could say, um, given how intimidating the marches are, given how damaging they are to um, you know the retail trade and the hospitality sector in central London, particularly in the run-up to Christmas, which is you know, one of those lucrative times of the year where they cover all their losses for the rest of the year, uh, maybe you could make an argument which wouldn't be outrageously authoritarian, that instead of marches of you know 100,000 people plus, there could be static protests in places like Trafalgar Square, limited to 20,000 people. Um, uh, and so you're not taking away the right to protest, to voice dissent, to chant from the river to the sea, but you're just... Uh, reducing the amount of disruption and potential distress uh, they could cause. I mean, is that a slippery slope? I don't know. How, do, how would you feel about that as a compromise?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting point, because I've always thought that freedom of speech is an absolute. It's an absolute freedom. It should not be interfered with. Um, freedom of protest is incredibly important in a democratic society. But I see it as a secondary freedom to freedom of speech, an extension of freedom of speech. And I do think there are some instances where... It probably is legitimate to not necessarily ban a protest, that would always be a bad thing to do, but to have certain rules about where it might be able to go or what you might be able to do. I mean, I always think of the example of the Occupy movement in 2001, I think, or 2010. I can't even remember, I'm losing track. Um, Occupy Wall Street, of course, but then we had Occupy St. Paul's in London, where they were sat around St. Paul's Cathedral for three weeks, I think, four weeks stinking it up, leaving litter, setting up tents. And I do remember thinking to myself quite a lot back then that surely this is a legitimate case for some form of intervention or some enforcement of a rule because it was clearly interfering with people's freedom to go about their daily lives. So the freedom of speech, the freedom to criticise bankers and damn the bankers as evil, etc., which is what the Occupy movement was doing, I would defend that to the hilt. But the freedom to sit on the street where people go shopping and eat lunch and attend church every day for weeks on end, I think that does uh, raise a question. But I agree with you uh, about the pro-Palestine marches. And I think it's it, that they should be allowed to go ahead in, in, the, in the way that they did. Uh, and I think it's useful to remind ourselves that another benefit of freedom of speech, of course, is that it allows us to see where bigotry exists in our society. Who has bigoted ideas? Um, why they have these ideas, what they consist of. I think another great thing about free speech is that it shines a light on hatred and allows us to see it and allows us to challenge it. And and knowing that there are significant numbers of people in our society who have these Israelophobic views and these anti-Western civilizational views, I think is probably a net benefit in the round for those of us who want to improve things.
0: Yes. I mean, um, I don't want to sound naively optimistic, but it does feel as though the reaction of some parts of the woke left to the atrocities that occurred on October seventh um, has been damaging to their cause. They have revealed themselves in a way which I think has shocked people who, until now, were inclined to just write it off as kind of youthful high spirits and the kind of thing they were like when they were in their, you know, in their in their student pomp. And they, I think, I think, it's brought home to a lot of people that underlying. This ideology, there is a kind of very toxic strain, which they weren't perhaps aware of before. So I agree with you on that score. I guess one, one further thing to say about this is that uh, the police's extraordinary forbearance um, that they've shown with respect to even some of the more extreme pro-Palestinian protesters to the extent of, you know, holding their flags while they climb on top of, you know, (laughs) restaurants and then passing them up the ladders. I mean, just extraordinary. Um, And uh, many people have made the point that they haven't shown anything like the same forbearance when it comes to less fashionable causes being protested, such as the anti-lockdown protests. And actually, when they have gone in mob-handed and arrested people, they've they've been much more likely to arrest counter-protesters like, you know, the football lads um, than they have... the pro-Palestinian protesters. However, flagrantly, they're breaking the law. And uh, and clearly, Suella Braberman's right. There is, you know, this is evidence of two-tier policing. Uh, and it just seems absurd that, you know, a grandmother can be taken in for questioning and have a non-crime hate incident recorded against her name because she puts a gender critical sticker on a pride poster, uh, or is suspected of doing so. Um, whereas someone can, you know, chant um, jihad and wave, you know, um, a, a jihadi flag and and get off completely scot-free. Uh, but I think that, that's not an argument for for the police to be as authoritarian when it comes to the policing of all dissent as, 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 as they are when it comes to policing, you know, unfashionable dissent. It's an argument for showing the same latitude and forbearance in every case.
1: Yeah, uh, my my favourite moment was when the police, the Metropolitan Police, explained that the word jihad has many meanings. You know, it was so you know these pound shop Islamic theorists that the Metropolitan Police have become, and you just think to yourself, hold on, this is a mob of people chanting for Muslim armies to launch jihad against the Jewish state. I don't think there is uh, any uh, mystery as to what they intended to say with that. But I, I did want to ask you, in fact, about double standards, which you've raised. There and I, I agree with you that I think the fallout from the Hamas pogrom of the seventh of October uh, in in the West has been extraordinary, and I think it really has highlighted the moral rot that exists in many of our institutions and many of our political movements, especially amongst those who pose as progressive and enlightened and fair. Very, they are very often at the forefront of some pretty hateful ideology that has come to the surface over the past few weeks. Um. I wanted to ask you about this in relation to campus censorship, which has been a serious problem for a long time. And in the week that we're speaking, we've seen three presidents of American universities, like proper top Ivy League universities, MIT, Harvard, and Penn, um, at a congressional hearing where they were being grilled on whether it's acceptable to to call for a, a genocide of the Jews on their campuses. And... They ermed and ard and said, yeah, it probably is within the rules as long as you don't act on it, which I guess that's a relief that they don't allow people to act on the genocide. Um, but it got me thinking about the extraordinary double standards that exist on campuses and, and in society more broadly, where if you refer to a trans woman as he you could potentially be blacklisted, protested against. In the past, pre-Elon Musk, you could be banned for life from Twitter. Um, if you ask a person of Asian heritage, where are you from? That is apparently a racial microaggression that calls into question their, sit- their status as British citizens, etc. And yet we're told that it's fine to say, let's have a genocide of the Jews, or it's fine to talk about Israel in the most uh, demonising language imaginable. Um It's fine to refer to the Hamas pogrom as a counter-offensive, which a meeting of Columbia University students uh, intended to do in the week that we're speaking as well. How how do you explain this? How do you explain this extraordinary double standard where the kind of people who will run away to a safe space to hide away from someone like you or Kathleen Stock or Nigel Farage are more than happy to say the most hateful and in some cases racist things about Jewish people and Israeli people?
0: Well, I think it's... um Exposed many of the proponents of woke culture in American and British universities um, as being much more politically contentious, much more ideological than they've hitherto been prepared to admit. I mean, the the argument for um, shutting down disagreeable speech on campus is that it, it's never presented as well. I don't think this person should be allowed to uh, talk about. The problems caused by mass immigration um, because I happen to disagree uh, with them and I don't share their politics. That's never the argument. The argument is if a recently arrived asylum seeker um, in the audience heard Nigel Farage setting out the case for more restricted Inward migration that could be really psychologically upsetting for them that would disturb their well being that 's the argument for no platforming gender critical feminists that it could it could cause all kinds of psychological harm to vulnerable disadvantaged people in the audience and universities have a duty of care towards those vulnerable historically disadvantaged groups it 's always presented like that it 's never presented as I just disagree with this person. I don't share their politics and therefore I want to shut them up. It's always presented as politically, not nearly as contentious as that. They appeal to these kind of broad universal principles of defending vulnerable people from harm. But what we've seen since October 7th is that when you take a historically marginalized group such as the Jews, um, there isn't the same enforcement of restrictions on speech likely to cause them psychological harm as there is on speech likely to cause other, more sacred minorities, psychological harm. And it exposes the degree to which it is all underpinned by a particular politically contentious ideology. And I think that's important and helpful, because one of the ways in which the woke mind virus replicates itself is by presenting to the person exposed to it as something politically neutral, and uncontroversial, something that any sensible, normal, compassionate, humanitarian person would unhesitatingly sign up to. Nothing at all contentious or controversial, nothing that requires a buy-in to a kind of dodgy, neo-Marxist, postmodernist philosophical perspective. It's all just kind of common sense for kind of, you know, millennials. Um, so if you can expose the degree to which actually, no, it's shot through with this incredibly contentious worldview, that I think makes it harder for it to replicate. So long term, it's probably a good thing. But maybe I'm just being naive. And that won't, in fact, in any way, interrupt the extraordinary velocity, momentum of of this particular virus.
1: Yeah, I think the, um, for me, most striking double standard in this part of the discussion is the way in which so-called pro-Palestine voices are now saying, look, we're being oppressed, we're being silenced. And in, in some instances, things like that are happening. You know, we have seen Palestinian authors being struck off um, from book festivals. We've seen actors in America being cancelled, at least temporarily, for expressing um very strong anti-israel views so incidents like that are happening and i do think that's a problem um you know there is the temptation to relish in the fact that it's happening to people who say that cancel culture is a myth but i think that would be a mistake and it's always better to cleave to one's principles and defend freedom of speech for everyone but, I, but, you know, the most striking example, I think, is in relation to the BDS movement, boycott, divestment and sanctions, which is not only a movement that forbids uh, or tries to forbid the selling of Israeli produce and Israeli goods, but also which um, rages against the arrival in Britain or America of, of Israeli academics, Israeli authors, Israeli musicians, Israeli actors, Israeli film festivals. We've seen protests and attempts to cancel all those kinds of things. It, it's always struck me as a almost a racist system of censorship designed to um, punish people of a certain ethnic national origin by refusing to allow them to speak. And the very same people who were at the forefront of BDS for years are now complaining about being censored themselves. So It it, it really does remind one of the importance of consistency in the free speech argument, which I don't think they will understand. But I I did want to ask you in relation to both to that and also the question of what Jewish students on campuses are supposed to do about this problem, because I do. I, I recognize that there is a temptation amongst Jewish students who feel very lonely at the moment to make the case for their inclusion in the system of the safe space, to say, look, these rules should apply to us as well. We should have the right to a safe space. We should have the right to be protected from psychologically harmful ideas. And I understand that temptation. That is basically a demand for equality under the system that currently exists on campus. But there could be a mistake there, couldn't there? Might it not be better to rather than say, we want in on the safe space as well, to challenge the whole idea of the safe space instead.
0: Yes, that would be that would be by far the better outcome. Um, one source of hope is that um, the Higher Education Freedom of Speech Act, I think when it comes into force, had it been in force now, it hasn't been activated yet, um, will be in about six months, but had it been in force, I think it would have protected some of the pro-Palestinian academics and students who got into trouble for... Chanting things like "From the River to the Sea," um, and that may awaken the woke left to the importance of putting in place these more robust legal protections for free speech on campus. Then yeah, it may be that the next the next government, if it's a Labour government, will be less likely to unwind that particular piece of legislation, um, given that actually um, it will serve to protect people on their side as well as on our side. And maybe you know, I mean, it, it's been extraordinary to see kind of um, woke warriors um, suddenly kind of um, becoming overnight conversions to the cause of free speech and bleating about, you know, how their free speech rights are under attack. You know, and until until yesterday they were saying that the free speech crisis is a complete uh, imaginary malady dreamt up by, you know, Daily Telegraph columnists like Douglas Murray. not Not real, nothing to see here. Suddenly, you know, they realize it is... problem for them and for others and so in the long term maybe that'll be quite helpful one other point on this i was gonna make uh brendan is that uh, one of the one of the extraordinary uh bits of gaslighting that has taken place in the past couple of months is um the claim mainly by you know the kind of establishment woke left that um all the anti-semitism is on the far right nothing to see here Look over there, and you know the claim that, that X has become a kind of festering um, sewer of anti-Semitism under Elon Musk, um, and the boycotting of X as a consequence by all these kind of American corporations like Disney. Um, it just seems just seems completely preposterous. It's very much a way of trying to avoid confronting the kind of exposure of quite deeply embedded anti-Semitism on the woke left. It's just a pretense that they don't have a problem and the problem exists entirely on the right. Yoram um, has only read a very good piece about this for, for the Daily Sceptic, actually.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I agree very much with that. Um, right, you mentioned X there and Elon Musk, and I did want to ask you about... Censorship online, which you mentioned in your uh, opening comment as well. It can feel sometimes quite difficult to get a handle on how things are going on the internet. I mean, one thing I know for sure is that the promise of internet freedom that we saw 25 years ago or so when the internet really took off uh, has died a death. You know, there was this dream that this would be a liberation even more profound than the printing press. You know, for the first time in history, people would have the ability to publish their ideas without even needing an editor, never mind uh, a prince or a priest or a politician to tell them what they can and cannot say. There was this aspiration to an extraordinary new era of freedom of expression. It hasn't played out like that. Partly because the social media oligarchs have proven themselves very keen to censor people on Facebook, on Twitter, pre-Musk certainly, uh, and elsewhere as well. And also now because the state is increasingly sticking its beak into what people say online. You mentioned the online safety uh, bill in the UK. There's also, also the Digital Services Act in the European Union, which could impose huge fines on social media companies if they fail to take down illegal or problematic content or misinformation as well um are are you hope well firstly uh, explain to us a little bit about how free speech is online at the moment is it getting less and less free in a in a palpable way and are you optimistic that it's going to turn around at any point soon
0: yeah well um it's undoubtedly i mean i think um, Twitter or X, as it now is, has undoubtedly become a freer platform under Elon Musk. You're less likely to be kicked off for uh, misgendering someone, that kind of thing. Um, so I'm I'm concerned that uh, the advertising boycott seems to be very effective. And when Elon Musk was interviewed last week, um, he, he seemed to be kind of fitting up the big advertisers who were boycotting Twitter as the cause of Twitter's demise, almost as though that was a foregone conclusion and it was just a question of who we blame now for its inevitable collapse. Um, That's quite quite a depressing prospect because I think one of the few uh, wins our side has had um, over the past couple of years has been Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter and turning what is the most important social media platform in the public square into a pro-free speech platform. So if that disappears, I think that'll be an absolute disaster. Um, I think that his life will become more difficult when the Digital Services Act kicks in, in combination with the uh, Online Safety Act. I mean, one concern is The Free Speech Union, Big Brother Watch and other lobby groups lobbied hard against the inclusion of any anti-misinformation or anti-disinformation clauses in the Online Safety Act successfully. So you won't find the word misinformation or disinformation in that particular piece of legislation. Um, They were were there originally, but they were removed during the course of its passage through Parliament as people lobbied against it. Um, But in the Digital Services Act in the EU, which of course doesn't apply here, social media companies are required in order to get licensed to operate within the EU to remove misinformation and disinformation. They have to include something about how they're going to uh, remove that in their terms and conditions as a condition of being licensed to operate within the EU, as you say, on pain of fines, if they then fail to enforce those policies, uh, massive fines. And the worry is that even though there's nothing about having to remove misinformation or disinformation in the Online Safety Act, um, that companies like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube will just have you know, European-wide terms and conditions. They won't differentiate between the EU and the UK. They'll just pledge to remove misinformation and disinformation in every region just to be simpler than having differentiated T's and C's. Um, So that's a major concern. We're going to have to see what we can do about that if that actually happens. Um, But I mean, you're completely right about how um, the kind of early hopes for the internet as a kind of explosion of free speech in the public square um, have com- been completely dashed. I mean, the example um, I like to give is that famous Apple ad, which I think was was like during the Super Bowl, like at least twenty five years ago, in which you had the guy running towards the Big Brother screen and smashing it uh, as though, you know, the kind of gatekeepers of the mainstream legacy media were Big Brother and, you know, micro computers uh, were, going to, were going to smash it and kind of liberate everyone. Um, uh, but I'm told that actually that's a misreading of that ad. It wasn't a kind of an attack on Orwellian censorship. It was just an attack on IBM. Um, uh, but, um, but certainly, that all that kind of you know rhetoric that surrounded the birth of the internet gave rise to expectations that have been completely dashed. And to all intents and purposes, you know, social media has become Big Brother, and uh, you know, it's become a tool of censorship that is used very effectively uh, by governments or government agencies at one remove.
1: Yeah. Um, Absolutely. I I want to ask you about the um, interplay between state agencies and social media, which, as you say, social media is very often the big brother. And it's very often the big brother for states that don't quite want to play that role. Or in the American case, they're forbidden from playing that role by the First Amendment, by the Bill of Rights. So one case I'm thinking of in particular is Ireland. Uh, I think what's happening in Ireland at the moment is extraordinary and terrifying. I say that as someone who loves Ireland deeply. I'm very worried about what's happening there. So one thing that there was that terrible stabbing of three kids and one of their care workers in uh, Dublin a couple of weeks ago, followed by um, some pretty bad civil unrest on O'Connell Street and other parts of Dublin. And then... After that, uh, Varadka and the rest of the Irish government said, look, we really need to rush through this hate crime legislation. We need to get it on the books. We need to make sure that far-right agitators can't say what they want to say online can't organize these kinds of riots etc one thing that came out as during that process was that the justice minister in ireland um had pressure on the police the Garda, to contact social media companies directly and say listen you need to take some of this stuff down so you had a situation where the police were contacting social media and saying this has to be removed that has to be removed a real i think terrifying glimpse into the potential for a police state that can come from uh, when we have a situation where social media companies are often quite happy to play the role of Big Brother and the state is very keen to clamp down on freedom of speech. So uh, let's talk a little bit about that situation where and i know that um you mentioned michael schellenberg and matt taibi as well they've talked about the american example of um a connection between state agencies and private companies uh as part of the uh indus- censorship industrial complex how worried are you about this kind of public private uh drive this moral mission to prevent people from saying certain things on the internet
0: yeah no i'm i'm very concerned about it um And one of the reasons it's so concerning is that liberal elites moving between these agencies, NGOs, government departments, political office, they seem to have a a completely different approach to dealing with what they consider to be problematic speech to their equivalents, you know, as recently as 15 years ago. So the prevailing Doctrine amongst educated liberal elites across the West until about 15 years ago was the counter speech doctrine, uh, as set out by Louis Brandeis in another famous Supreme Court case, uh, I think in the 1920s, uh, in which he he said the best way to counter what we consider to be problematic, harmful speech is not enforced silence, but more and better speech, to counter it with better speech. Uh, Sunlight is the best disinfectant, as he famously said. Um, There seems to have been a complete change of heart about that. And I think in the process, they've forgotten that one of the reasons the counter-speech doctrine held sway for you know almost 100 years um, is that censorship is ineffective. It doesn't work. Um, you know, something like the Streisand effect happens when you try and censor what you consider problematic speech. You draw attention to it. You kind of increase its valiance rather than reduce it. And, you know, Exhibit A is um, attempts to suppress anti-Semitism in Weimar Germany didn't succeed in stopping the rise of the Nazi parties. On the contrary, it enabled various prominent Nazis, including Hitler, to pose as martyrs, enemies of the state. And um, ditto in Ireland, you can't imagine that removing a couple of inflammatory anti-migrant posts on Facebook or X is going to, far from actually reducing Anti-migrant sentiment, if anything, it's just going to consolidate it and make people think that you know, uh, if, if the state is suppressing me, if it's not allowing me to say this, then there must be something in it. Same same thing we've seen with various efforts to suppress criticisms of the COVID vaccines. Um, far from reducing vaccine hesitancy, they appear to have increased it. People think, well, if you're taking down any posts on social media drawing attention to some of the harmful side effects of these vaccines, then there must be something to it, you know, uh, and it decreases trust in the authorities that they can't cope with a bit of criticism. They, they're not confident enough to rebut it in the public square. They have to shut it down. And that's why we've had measles outbreaks in places like New York. Um, and uh, this, this leads to a kind of rather gloomy conclusion. I mean, if, if you agree with me that attempts to suppress speech Liberal elites think of as problematic, leading to undesirable political consequences, such as the election of Donald Trump or the Brexit vote. If you believe that attempts to suppress that speech has the opposite of its intended effect and only actually feeds kind of populism, it feeds that sense of grievance and exclusion. Um, then, actually, what, what will how will they respond when their attempts to 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 to, to suppress this sentiment? to snuff it out has the opposite intended effect. Well, they'll just have to double down. And that, in turn, will amplify it even more. So you're in, in a kind of doom loop. And it felt to me when Varadkar, when his kind of response to the stabbing of three schoolchildren by a man of, what, North African heritage at a primary school in Dublin, his response was, we have to double down On authoritarian restrictions on speech, we have to expedite the passing of this unbelievably draconian anti-free speech bill. Um, It it felt to me like that—that's the beginning of the end. That's the kind of doom loop spiralling out of control. And it will only prompt, kind of, I would have thought, if anything, suppressing kind of uh, the growth of populism in Ireland. Will have the opposite of its intended effect. And. It looks like Conor McGregor may even run in two years' time for presidency of, of Ireland, and I imagine, you know, would wipe the floor for radco, who knows.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's absurd and logical at the same time, the, the potential of a conor mcgregor presidency in ireland but let's see how things go yes i think that i think one of the issues with um hate speech legislation which i did want to come on to uh, you mentioned earlier on that there is a there are moves afoot across the globe to institute new laws against so-called hate speech uh in ireland of course uh, New Zealand, Australia, um, elsewhere in Europe, there's been hate speech laws for a long time, but they're being used in different ways as as we speak. Isn't one of the things we need to do to, to call into question the whole idea of hate speech? I've always found the term hate speech to be as um, offensive as I would the idea of thought crime. Because firstly, I think hatred is an emotion. It might not be a big and clever emotion. Very often it isn't. But it is an emotion, it is a feeling, and I don't think the state should be in the business of of policing how people feel about things, or the intensity of their emotions in relation to immigration, or whatever else it might be, or Islam. But also, alongside that, as you will know, a lot of perfectly legitimate moral and political points of view are very swiftly rebranded hate speech these days by the woke elites, if they take Uh, Offense at something, they will say, Well, that's clearly hate speech. For example, a gender critical feminist standing up and saying, That person in a dress over there is a man. There are lots of people around, including influential people, who would consider that an act of hate speech, whereas I would consider it a statement of fact, a statement of truth. Don't we need to start calling into question the whole category of hate speech, both in terms of pushing back the state's right to police speech and also? The criminalization of moral viewpoints that's taking place.
0: Yes, and I, I can give you a really good example of a perfectly legitimate viewpoint being delegitimized by being branded hate speech. So, a trans rights activist started a petition on change.org urging the Oxford English Dictionary to change its definition of woman from adult human female to something more trans inclusive. And Kelly J. Keane started a rival petition. And all she did in her rival petition was urge the OED to retain its existing definition of woman. And her petition, not the other one, her petition was taken down by Change.org on the grounds that it was, quote-unquote, hate speech. You're absolutely right. Um, it's a rhetorical manoeuvre to try and delegitimize points of view you disagree with, um, as is branding a point of view you disagree with, misinformation or disinformation. You found this kind of during the aftermath of the Brexit vote, there was this left-wing conspiracy theory that the only reason the British public had narrowly voted to leave the European Union is because they were misinformed by these bad actors, in some cases, you know, financed by the Russian state. Uh, And that was the only possible explanation. It wasn't that there was a conflict of values. It wasn't that there were some costs associated with globalization, which were damaging the working class in particular. Um, no, it, it was just because these stupid voters had been led astray by misinformation and disinformation. Um, it's a kind of, why do the kind of defenders of the status quo of the kind of current regime, why do they constantly engage in these ways of avoiding having kind of meaningful philosophical debates About fundamental conflicts of values in the public square. Um, It must be because they're not terribly confident of their own position. They don't want to be forced to defend it because they don't really know how to go about it. And that became apparent, I thought, very clearly. It was a real insight, I thought, when Nigel Farage was debanked. And I guess one of the good things that's happened this year is that. Nigel and others have drawn attention to the debanking phenomenon and people have realised, you know, um, just how much overreach there is in these institutions when it comes to the policing of speech and thought. Um, But one of the revealing things I thought about that episode was that Cootes and NatWest couldn't be honest about why they debanked Nigel. They debanked him because they disagree with his political views. You know, the, the subject access request that he submitted revealed that you know there are various memos exchanges between the people involved in the decision to debank him and the reason they were doing it is because they dislike his politics but they couldn't say that up front in the public square they had to invent reasons uh, for debanking him which of course got them into all sorts of trouble and resulted in the resignation of Alison rose Uh, but why did they invent them why didn't they just honestly say why they debanked him and defend their values and their policies it's because they don't know how to they're not very confident they don't have the kind of intellectual hinterland the kind of breadth of knowledge they haven't thought deeply about it it's kind of like a philosophy they've acquired from Instagram without kind of it's not rooted in anything it's paper thin so maybe Brenda maybe maybe you know we're going about our work in the wrong way maybe in order to defend free speech and persuade people on the other side to be less trigger happy when it comes to, you know, branding things, misinformation, disinformation, calling for the arrest and imprisonment of people who engage in hate speech, no platforming people. But the reason they do all these things is because they completely lack any confidence in their own beliefs, their own values. Maybe what we should be doing is helping them flesh out some kind of a better, deeper understanding of what it is they believe. You know, We've switched sides for a year and help them develop a kind of better, deeper, richer understanding of their own positions so they're then better equipped to defend them in the public square and less likely to engage in cancel culture as a kind of knee-jerk response to any kind of challenge.
1: (laughs) That's not a bad idea. I can see the free speech union getting stuck into that. Um, I think that's a really important point, actually, about the... um, the weakness of the censorship side, and I guess if you think about it, censorship is always a sign of weakness in in the sense that, you know, at some level there's a lack of faith in one's own belief system and one's own de- ideology to such an extent that you cannot tolerate any criticism or ridicule or pushback or comedy or whatever else it might be. Um, there is a kind of weakness there. I, I often think of the fact that even the Vatican had... Uh, which was, you know, hardly the most liberal institution in the world back in the day, Um, even they had a devil's advocate because they they recognised the value of subjecting your ideas and your beliefs to ridicule, to questioning. So whenever they would put someone forward for sainthood, they would invite a devil's advocate to put the case of Satan himself. You know, this is why he shouldn't be a saint or she shouldn't be a saint because there is such value in having your ideas tested. It helps you to sharpen them, to make them better, to improve yourself. So the the weakness bound up in in that instinct to censor everything, I think, is, is really important. And we end up with censorship in denial, where people are being censored, but the people censoring them haven't even got the balls to say, yes, we are censoring. You. They make up all sorts of excuses, as you were saying earlier. Um, okay, Toby, my final question for you then is kind of looking forward a little bit, but s- specifically in the British context. Um, we're going to have an election next year. Um, as you've been saying today, and I think it's incredibly useful, there are positive things about freedom of speech and there are less positive things as well. I think the fact that even we're ha- even that we're having this kind of conversation is really important. The existence of the Free Speech Union, Big Brother Watch, Schellenberger and Taibbi's work, of course, Spiked, which has been making the case for free speech for a very long time. All of these institutions, I think, are playing a really important role. But looking forward to 2024 in Britain, i I can't feel very rosy because it does seem to me that labor is not on the side of freedom, as we know. They've even been having discussions about outlawing, misgendering, for example, and who else who knows what else they're thinking of. Um, the Conservative Party, I think, in its current form, doesn't quite understand the threat that wokeness poses to liberal society and to the values of our society. I don't. I think they don't get it and, and, and they s- tend to treat it as a, as a small, minor issue. Um, do you see anything cutting through in Britain in 2024 that might blow that up, that might bring the parties to their senses? How optimistic do you feel about freedom in Britain in the next year?
0: Yes, well, I think the only reason I can think of to be optimistic is that I think a Keir Starmer-led, Majority Labour government will certainly be much less, even less sympathetic to free speech concerns than the present government. Um, and it'll be very difficult, I think, for the Free Speech Union to get much traction, to engage with the next government um, on issues like, you know, a hate crime and public order bill, um, some kind of ban on misgendering um, that Annalisa Dodd talked about. Um, but on the plus side, in the same way that Trump's victory in 2016 and successive conservative victories since 2010 have kind of galvanized the woke left and produced this kind of hysterical opposition to what they think of as the kind of racist, white, privileged, elite kind of running everything, winning elections. So if social democracy triumphs with a kind of thumping majority next year, that will take a lot of the kind of energy out of the woke left. They, they will no longer be able to, I mean, we, you and I know that they're not really, in any sort of meaningful sense, um, a kind of beleaguered anti-establishment minority tilting out these kind of all-powerful titans of the establishment. On the contrary, to all intents and purposes, they are the establishment. They are the regime. Um, they control all our major institutions. Um, but they've been able to pretend, and I think gather support for their cause and kind of whip people up uh, by by pretending that they are an oppositional movement, that they, they are the dissenters, they are the rebel alliance, um, and we are in cahoots with the bad guys. Um, it's going to be much more difficult to, to maintain that pretense if they actually win, you know, a major general election or are in power for the next five years. So I think that could take a... I mean, I, you already feel that the kind of momentum... Behind the kind of whole, you know, woke movement is is beginning to dissipate. Um, they've suffered a couple of major setbacks. I mean, I guess you know, um, obviously, the, 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 maybe the biggest one in the past year was the demise of Nicola Sturgeon over the admission of a trans woman sex offender to a women's prison. Um, but they seem to be really on the back foot on on, on that kind of cluster. Of issues, they've overreached. They they are suffering some major defeats. Um, Britain, not not quite turf island, but you know, we can take some pride, I think, in that we're described that way by some trans rights activists in the United States. Um, so, and it feels like the energy is beginning to dissipate. That uh, maybe we haven't quite reached peak woke yet, but it feels like we may be about to. Uh, and, and my hope is that. Um, The one silver lining in um, a Labour victory uh, would be to take even more of that steam out of that particular
1: movement. Toby, thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.